welcome. I hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving break. And I hope that you were able to avoid the sickness. Good night. I know we got uh, totally clobbered with it. And if you ever, for perchance, happen to hear that I am sick, be sh I would appreciate if you prayed for our family because I get the worst man colds. I am an absolute baby, and I will be the first to admit it. So they endure a lot when I am, uh, am sick. Uh, but it's good to be back in the book of Mark. We have this week in Mark, and then we will finish off uh, really what's part of the same passage next week to get through chapter 14, uh, and then we'll have those three uh, Advent sermons, and then one, uh, as we normally do, the first Sunday after Christmas of Purpose and Pursuits, then we'll finish off the book of Mark. We have two chapters left after uh, next week. And our, our passage today <clears throat> is really one that would be very easy to just breeze right past, uh, especially if you've known the Lord for any uh, length of time. Uh, this is very familiar, right? Jesus was brought before uh, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, and he was uh, condemned to be put to death and taken off to Pilate. And it's just sort of like one next step on the way to the crucifixion. And and that's true, it's, it's the next step. But Mark, obviously, uh, as well as uh, Luke and Matthew uh, and John, uh, they, they include these stories that they have because they have certain realities that they want to make sure are brought before, with God, before God's people. There are certain claims that are made about the Lord here that we want to pay attention to. So somehow we want to always try to slow our brains and our hearts down as we read the text. And as you know, one of the uh, ways that we... One of the questions we'll ask sometimes uh, as we approach narrative literature is if you were to put this scene on as a play, now how would you do that? What sort of things in the background would you be having? What sort of tone would you have in coming out uh, from the characters? Uh, where would you have the crowd gasping or laughing? Where would you hear sarcasm? And, and really try to get into how would I want to communicate this? Now with that, uh, and another question you can ask is, if you were putting this on as a play, how would you want the audience to leave? Like, what do you want forefront in their mind, feeling-wise, and from what reality is being claimed? So you're trying to think through that. And one of the ways that you can approach that is with another question I like to ask sometimes. If you could, if you could go home with one of the characters, because these people in these scenes are real people, and they went home, they had families, when they went home, what, what did they communicate to their family members, to their spouse, to their children, to their grandkids, what they just saw? And how does that shape their life from that point forward? Now, obviously, we're going to take some creative license at that, right? We want that to be educated from the passage. But we're just simply trying to say, what, what's the experience? What is, what is the author trying to communicate so that I feel that too? And uh, you can do that with real people in the passage, right? So if you're going through Mark chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic, you could go home, so to say, with one of the friends that was brought this paralytic to Jesus and go home with this friend and hear how he introduces what just happened at this house when you brought your paralyzed friend that actually stood up and walked home. Or if somebody in the crowd in Mark 5, when, when the, the woman with the discharge of blood actually touched Jesus, that she shouldn't be doing. And you saw that, and you saw him interact with this woman. And you go home with this character. How would they tell the story? Again, it's just a way to slow down, experience the story a little bit. Now, one of the ways you can also do this is imaginary character that's not in the passage. 
which I'd like to think through today a little bit. Um, there is no follower of Jesus in our passage. They've all scattered, if you remember from last week. And in reality, they will be discouraged and confused over the next three days until Christ raises from the dead and appears to them. But what if there was a follower of Jesus that had snuck into this room and somehow was able to process it in a way that was right and helpful? Again, even though that didn't happen, what, what is Mark trying to communicate that he would be able to go home and tell his family member? Uh, so we'll do that at the end. So as we're going through the passage, maybe you could think about that. What would this person, if a follower of Jesus, watching this scene unfold, how would they feel? How should we think about it? And we'll call our friend Ezekiel. But let's jump into the passage. Uh, we start with our setting, uh, verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the scri- elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So here Mark just simply sets our, or gives us our setting. And if you remember the context, uh, over the course of the night, Jesus had eaten the Passover with his disciples. After the Passover, they went out to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus prayed. And it was in the Mount of Olives, right after Jesus was praying with his, uh, by himself and comes over to the disciples, that uh, Judas comes with this group of soldiers, and they arrest Jesus, and they take him uh, off uh, right to our scene here, right into where the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are. This is what is called the Sanhedrin, or sometimes the council. It's this, this is uh, the group of uh, one of the tax, tasks of this group of Jewish leaders was to make sure justice is done in the Jewish culture. So it would be 71 members of this council. They're not always all here, uh, but they're from different theological backgrounds as well. So there's Sadducees and there's Pharisees on the council, and this was intentional uh, because this keeps a little bit of a balance of power and makes sure that everything doesn't go in one direction. And their whole system was meant to make sure that justice is served correctly. And in fact, this is, all of this is coming out of uh, Deuteronomy, or not all of it, but the, it's to follow the principles of Deuteronomy, where God had told uh, his people that nobody should ever be put to death unless for a crime unless there are two or three witnesses. You don't have two or three witnesses, you may not commit that person to death for whatever crime it was. You have to be able to prove the case. You also were not allowed to take any bribe uh, when it comes to uh, court cases and such, as well as there was very strict guidelines for a false testimony. If somebody gives a false testimony against another, another person, if it was shown to be false, whatever, whatever the, the punishment for the crime would be that they're alleging of the person, that, that punishment was then put on the person giving the false testimony. So it's a way of deterring false testimony. And then the Sanhedrin had all sorts of additional rules to try to preserve justice, like you're not supposed to hold cases at night. And if there's a a capital crime that's determined, there's supposed to be a waiting period before you actually carry out the sentencing uh, to give any further witnesses a chance to come forward and such. So they, they had these other rules to make sure justice is served. And Jesus here is now hauled off to them. Uh, for his, you might say, air quotes, trial. This is more, this is more of an interrogation. Uh, they don't actually have the authority to put someone to death. 
because Rome is in charge. But they're going to interrogate him, and we'll get to that in a minute. But then Mark shifts to show that Peter is here too. Peter is not in the same room as Jesus. This is at the, the uh, high priest's house. Peter is outside in, in the courtyard. Now, Peter's he's just going to introduce Peter. He's out there warming himself by the fire, co- coming at a distance. That's all he has to say about Peter. He'll come back to Peter later. And what, what's happening here is someone like you might see in the movies or something. We, we just watched uh, Super Mario Brothers over this, uh, the past weekend. It's a good film. And uh, one of the scenes you see is, if you know Super Mario Brothers, uh, the game, if you, there's those orange, green tunnels you can like, go into, right? And it takes you either to a different part of the same world or it takes you to a different world. These transporting tunnels, right? And uh, Mario and Luigi got sucked into this green tunnel as they're looking for a, a leak, because they were plumbers, if you remember. They, they get sucked into this green tunnel, and they're being transported uh, to this other world, and they're together. And then right before they get sucked into the next green tunnel to go to a different world, they get separated. And they each land in a different world. And what the movie does is first you watch Mario a little bit, his scene. And then it transports you back to Luigi. And then you, you follow his scene. And then it's Mario again. And then it's Luigi. And you're, he's taking you back and forth because what's happening in each of their scenes is happening simultaneously until they're... Uh, their scenes meet again, right? And so he's bringing you forward that way, and that's what Mark is doing here. These two trials, or so to say, or these interrogations, are going to happen simultaneously. As Jesus is up uh, in the, on the second floor being interrogated by the, the Sanhedrin, Peter is outside in the courtyard, and he's being interrogated by the, uh, the guards and the slaves. Uh, so that's our setting. Now we come to the tension. And I, I call this one uh, the search for guilt. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. We'll pause there. This is the, the rising tension, the search for guilt. If you notice in verse 55, uh, it starts off good. They're seeking testimony. This, this is what the Sanhedrin should be doing, seeking testimony, but then he quickly qualifies it. Testimony against Jesus to put him to death. In other words, what they're not doing is trying to, to really figure out what's going on, to figure out the real claims. They're seeking a way to destroy Jesus. So they're not, they didn't call in Bar, blind Bartimaeus and say, hey, Bartimaeus, we heard that you were blind. Now you see what happened to you. Tell us. Tell us who this man is that did this to you. They didn't call in Jairus, whose daughter was raised from the dead, and find out what he has to say. They didn't call the leper in that Jesus touched and was made well. They didn't call the Seraphonician woman in that Jesus, whose daughter Jesus healed. They didn't, they didn't uh, call in the other blind man in uh, Mark chapter 8. They're, they're not, in other words, they're not looking for witnesses that are going to testify for Jesus. They're looking for false testimony who's going to testify against Jesus. Why? To put him to death, Mark tells us. So in other words, they already have the verdict. 
which is guilty, they already have the punishment, which is the guilty will lead to death. The only problem is they don't have the crime. And that's what they're trying to find right now. We, we know he's guilty, and we know he deserves to die. We just got to find out why. <laughs> they just got to find the crime. And the tricky part here is that they don't have the authority to actually put someone to death for a crime, so they need to find a crime that not only is guilty before the Jewish law, but also guilty before the Roman law. So there might be a crime in the, in the Jewish law, let's say that they charge someone with blasphemy because this individual uh, was, it, it made a, 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 some sort of a bull or a golden calf or something and was calling, saying, this is our God. Right? That would be blasphemy. It's diminishing God, dishonoring God. That would be blasphemy, deserving punishable by death in the Jewish law. But you bring that before the Romans, they don't care. We're not, we're not going to put someone to death for that. They can, they can go worship a bull. See, what they need to do is find a crime that is punishable by death in the Jewish law and punishable by death under the Romans. So they're up to a task here, and Mark uh, goes out of his way to tell us that they're having problems. This is because they're, they have everything in the wrong order. They're not actually searching for truth they already know what, what the end result is that they want. They just have to find a way to calm the conscience. And, you know, this is very much how people approach uh, life and approach Jesus still yet today. They already, they already know who they want to be God over, the, over, over their life, namely themselves. They're, they're not actually interested in truth with Jesus. They just want to know enough to, to be able to say, well, I looked into it enough, and I don't believe that stuff. And I know when, when, before I was a follower of Christ and I used to ask questions to the person that was witnessing to me, uh, you know, it would, it would be the common questions, at least at the time, I thought they were very unique. Questions like, well, if, if God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Or how can we really trust that the Bible is written, you know, inspired by God when it was also written by man and it was written so long ago? How, how do we know that it's not been tampered with? And I would ask these questions and I thought, Oh, that just I at least have these questions that at least satisfies my need to act like I'm asking the questions and I don't have answers, therefore I can live how I want. It's a way of calming the conscience. Now, I'm not actually look, looking for truth because after I became a follower of Jesus, I got a hold of some books like The Case for Faith, Case for Christ, and I realized, oh man, people have been asking the same questions for centuries and way more questions than I'm asking and they have really good answers. And I realized, oh, I wasn't actually searching for truth. I just wanted to calm my conscience enough so I could do as I pleased. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you don't follow Jesus. I would, I would ask you are, you, are you actually looking for answers? And I can assure you, if you are, there are very good answers out there about who this man is, and who he was, who he claimed to be. And you will find answers satisfying to the soul if you truly come and look for truth. But on this very day, they could find nothing for the crime. Look at uh, verse 55. He tells us they found none. Verse 56, their testimony did not agree, which meant it had to be thrown out. Uh, in verse 59, it says once again, it did not agree. 
This, this, is, uh, this is sort of like, as I view the scene, this is sort of like a circus. It, it, it's sort of like you can, you can almost see the, the Sanhedrin sitting there and just going, oh, these witnesses, we gave them one job. One job. All you got to do is come in and say this one line. Just say the line and be quiet. And they keep somehow messing up their testimony. They can't even, these two people that are trying to give false testimony, they, they can't even do that cleanly. They can't keep the story straight. It remi- makes me think of this would be the wet bandits trying to put Jesus on trial. If you, anybody remember the wet bandits? There you go. Yeah, it's the robbers from Home Alone. Right? Home Alone, I know, is going to be played around this time of year now. Uh, that's this when uh, Kevin, a uh, younger kid, was left home alone. His parents forgot him as they went off to vacation. He's home alone, and these, these two robbers called the Wet Bandits are going to try to rob the house, but Kevin's going to protect the house from, from the Wet Bandits. And uh, so he sets up all sorts of traps to keep the Wet Bandits out from getting into the house to rob it. And uh, these guys just keep falling into these traps. And so they're trying to get into the, the door, and they can't get in. They finally come up with a plan. Okay, you go to the front, and we'll, I'll go to the back. And they, they run to the back and the front, and they, they both get to the steps, and the steps are loaded with ice because he sprayed it with water, Kevin did. And, and they both go fly, and they fall down. Well, then the guy's in the back. He, he just is able to get into the basement, and he comes over. It's real quiet. He sees a string for the light, pulls on the string, and he realizes, oh, that. It's not the light looks up, and there's the iron coming down the clothes chute. Remember that? Boom. He gets knocked out, and then he shifts scene to the other guy in the front door. As he's walking up to the door, you, you see that the door handle is red hot because Kevin and on the other side put a, a heat thing to, to heat up the handle, and he, he, he goes and grabs the handle, his hand's burning. He runs off to the snow and puts in the snow, and then he goes back to the basement, and you see the guy walking up on the tar-filled uh, Stairs to go upstairs, remember that? And his shoes are getting stuck, his socks are getting stuck, and finally you see his feet as he's going up, and you remember what's there, right? He puts it right on this nail coming up, and he's, ah, right? These, these guys are they're buffoons. And that, that's what's going on in this interrogation. They can get nothing right. And then you can bet the, the Sanhedrin is just like, who, who are these fools? All, we're, all we need is people to lie well. The high priest can't take it anymore. He steps forward, verse 60, the high priest stands up in the midst, and he he asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This here is is getting us into the climax of the scene. I call this the question, capital T, capital H, capital E, the question. But he starts off first coming forward to Jesus, asking, do you have anything to say to these? And I don't know what the tone of voice he has. I don't don't know. I've thought of it in two different ways. Either I could see him being totally irate. He's just frustrated, and you can see the veins pop if he veins popping out of his neck. If he doesn't have hair like this, you can see the veins popping out of his skull, but most likely he had hair. And he's maybe spit, spittle coming out of his mouth. What do you have to say? Don't, don't you have anything to say to these people? Why are you sitting there so silent? And maybe he's upset, right? And he can't hold it in. Or maybe he's a little bit more sly, trying to, trying to sow seeds of question and doubt in everybody else. Oh, and destroy the temple, they say. 
Don't have an answer for that one, do you? Got an answer for that accusation there, buddy? Hmm, I wonder why not. And try, maybe he's trying to sow the seeds of, of doubt into the rest of <clears throat> the council. At any rate, Jesus, amazingly, like a sheep before its shears, like a lamb led to the slaughter, is totally silent. Says no answer, not even a word. I, I think this is instructive for us. You know, as you follow Christ, you can pretty well know that there will be times in your life where people say things about you assume things about you that's not accurate. And there is a powerful temptation within us to feel like I need to set that record straight. One, because they need to know what's true about me, and they're talking with other people, and I need to make sure that record is set straight. And it can be very painful, very painful if people are saying things that are not accurate about you. And I, I know that, that, that through the years of the ministry, there's, there's been times where there's been harsh statements towards myself, some, in person, over email. Sometimes it feels relentless. And there's this strong, deep desire within to feel like, I, I, need, to clear, I need to clear these things up. Now, there might be a time for that, for sure. I, I think you can make a case for that. But there's also a time, as we see right here, I don't have to set the record straight. There is an ultimate judge who will make sure that everything is made straight at some point. Believe that there is a time to remain silent. And we should at least be asking ourselves, why do I feel so need, feel the need so, so deeply that I need to set the record straight? And part of it is we love our reputation. It can be very hard. So it might just encourage all of us, the next time you experience that, it might be a good idea before you stick up for yourself, defend yourself, to ask another believer. You feel like someone who's walking with the Lord and find out what they think. Should, should you speak up or should you remain silent? And there's a, a time for both. But here, the, the high priest, he can't take it. I think that silence was probably deafening. And he again then asks them straightforward, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? The using blessed there is, is a, it's a substitute for God. This would, this would be very normal in the Jewish culture to not use or say God, but instead use a word to describe him, right? Because lest they should blaspheme God and accidentally say his name wrong or something like that or stumble on it. And so it's, it's sort of ironic, actually, right, here, because we want to follow the rules so as not to blaspheme that we won't say God's name. It's son of the blessed. And Jesus actually follows suit when he says at the right hand of power rather than at the right hand of God so, as, so they don't pin a, 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 the, an accusation on him that Pilate's not going to care about. Nonetheless, uh, I try to envision this one as well. How, how does uh, the high priest speak here? 
I don't know if he's, you know, slamming on a table. Tell us now, are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? Or if he's more sarcastic, maybe. You? With absolute no authority? Arrested? You? Are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed? The exalted Son of the Blessed? And here you are? I don't know how it was. But here we have the question, and this, this is the moment. This is, if I was showing this on TV, I'm, I'm going to let that hang in the air for a while, and then I'm going to go to commercial. And maybe I'll just say, we'll see you back next week. You, you, you want the audience to wait. What? Is he going to respond? Now, if you've been re- reading through the book of Mark, you, there actually is this, this question in your mind. Is Jesus going to respond to this? Because remember what the first line of the book is? first line of the book of Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the very opening line is being questioned right here. And what happens after that first line as Jesus heals someone, what does he tell them? Don't tell anybody. He heals the next person. Don't tell anybody. He was the next person. Don't tell anybody. So there's this whole messianic secret, not, not letting it out, who Jesus is, as you've been following the book. And even when you get to chapter 8, when Peter and the disciples actually finally confess, Jesus says, who do you think I am? Who do you say? And they say, you're the Christ. And they get it right. And what does Jesus say to his disciples? Shh. Don't tell anybody. Next chapter, chapter 9, with James and uh, Peter, James, and John, the transfiguration, Jesus unveils more of his glory than anyone had ever seen. And they're coming down the mountain, and what does he say to Peter, James, and John? Shh, don't tell anybody what you saw until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So all through the book, you've been, you've been watching as Jesus is not letting out this secret. He's not going public about who he is. And so as he's questioned by the high priest, this is, this is the moment, will he actually speak up? And if he doesn't speak up, what happens? Because there, is, there seems to be enough evidence to, to, to be uh, pretty, fairly confident that uh, the, uh, a defendant being silent does not automatically mean guilt both external and internal. And as the story continues, that Jesus is taken in the book of Luke. He's taken to Herod eventually. And the chief priests and the scribes follow him to Herod, and they're standing right beside him as Herod's trying to listen. Herod's interrogating him. And the chief priests and the scribes are making all these accusations. It says vehemently against Jesus. And Jesus does not say a single word the whole time. And Herod declares him innocent. So if he remains silent, it's, it's not like now they got something to pin on him. They haven't found anything all night. There's a good chance they won't have anything to take to Pilate. And if they don't have anything to take to Pilate, this man cannot be crucified. So everything's hanging in the balance right here, whether or not he will answer the question. And of course, we 
know what happens. Jesus does go public. What verse are we at? Verse 62. Jesus said, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the Blessed. But now he puts the pedal to the metal. Because he's, he's really going to turn up the volume. So that, no, I, I want you to really know who I am. And you are going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now this, we've, uh, he's quoting from two passages here, Psalm 110, uh, as well as Daniel 7. We've seen the Psalm uh, 110 one, actually, in chapter 12, if you remember, uh, when he asks about the scribes. He says, why, why do the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David, if you remember this? Uh, you see, they, they had this view that the Christ was from David, and therefore he was, he was a, a man. But the, he was a, a, a human king. But that was, that was the extent of it. And Jesus challenging their view, saying, well, well then, if he's only a man in Psalm 110, how does David say, I saw the Lord say to my Lord? How does, how does, there you go. <laughs> yeah. how, how does David call the Christ my Lord? Like, David wouldn't call his, uh, a descendant of just simply a man that. He wouldn't call him my Lord. So remember, in chapter 12, Jesus confronting them, saying, yes, the Christ is a man, but he's so much more than a man. He, ha he has the, the very power of God himself, because he's, he's the God-man. And he's doing the same thing here. Uh, as he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of, of, of power, uh, which is from Psalm 110, but then goes to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, you have this div divine figure, called the Son of Man, who comes to the Ancient of Days as the Ancient of Days is sitting and reigning. And it says that the Ancient of Days gave the Son of Man a kingdom. And this kingdom would be universal. It would be over all, all kingdoms. And it would be eternal, everlasting. And nothing, it would never perish. And now he's putting both of these promises together and saying, look, I am the cry. I am the, I am the promised anointed one who's going to come from David. But I am the universal king who reigns over all things. And I'm the eternal one. And my kingdom will never perish. And we should be asking, well, when, when does this happen? Because he says, you are going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. When does this happen? <clears throat> well, on one level, we would say uh, it, it happens at after the resurrection, then you have a period of 40 days where Jesus teaches the disciples and then he ascends into heaven and is enthroned. So if you remember at the, at the book of Mark, at the very last uh, scene, at the great, uh, great Commission, right? He quotes from Daniel 7. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. Daniel 7 is now being completed. It's being fulfilled. I am going to go to the Father and I'm going to be enthroned as king. Therefore, I have all authority. Therefore, go. Revelation 5, we see the same thing. As, as the king is enthroned uh, for this age, that Jesus truly is king over all things. Uh, that's why Paul calls him the king of kings. He's not that he will be the king of kings. He is the king of kings. There is no one over uh, Jesus right now. He is the greatest authority in all the universe. He is the king of kings, reigning uh, currently, which... As followers of Jesus reading this scene, we should actually be very encouraged by what he says here. Jesus is making it very plain who he is. 
He is the universal king that reigns over all things. That means as you walk into the world today, Jesus truly is king today. Not that he will be, because he will be, and for sure one day his kingdom will be consummated and we will experience it differently. All evil will be eradicated. No one will contest his kingdom. But he is king today. He is in absolute authority. He sustains all things by the word of his power. And believer, this is meant to be great comfort as we read this passage. As Jesus declares, he is the king. And I wonder if there's areas of your life that you have going on that if you could truly just stop and let this seep down into your soul a little bit more, if you would find a little bit more stability in life. It can be simple things, you know, just the way the, the what feels like very chaotic in the home, just simply pausing and saying, Jesus is now the king. And like we want to connect the dots of the reality that Jesus reigns today and connect it down to the very avenues of life, what we experience. So when you go to, some of you are probably at jobs that you do not care to go to tomorrow. Boss is not kind. It's boring. You do the same thing every week. And would it not help stabilize our hearts if we could say, okay, Jesus is reigning. I, I, don't, I don't understand everything, but it's not like he's totally absent and can't see. It's not that he can't change things if he so sees it. It's good for me. He's a good king. He's a good shepherd, and he will care for me. He is reigning today. Maybe if you're experiencing uh, infertility or a wayward child, what balm for the soul to be able to say, Jesus is king today. And some of you uh, around the holiday season, this can be a dark time for some folks. As you go to visit family, family comes to visit you. I know that those, those are not always happy times. And how good it is to know that Jesus, regardless of what I'm experiencing, he is the king. And he will see to it that all justice, all, all wrong will be made right. Justice will be done. And I can entrust my heart and my days to him. Well, the, the chief priests now, they, they have the charge that they need, right? This is, is punishable by death in their mind uh, in Jewish law because Jesus in their mind is blaspheming God. He's diminishing God. Here's, here's a man standing before them saying that he himself is divine, the divine king, the universal king, they, and they can't take it. But that's also a crime that Pilate, in their mind, Pilate will feel threatened because Pilate will hear that. This man's claiming to be king. He's, he's an insurrectionist. He's going to raise up against Rome. And so now, now they have what they think will be the crime that will stick. And if you could hear this, I, I, would, I would want uh, Jesus to say this in sort of a, I feel like it's an epic taunt or smackdown of them. Because essentially what Jesus is saying to these guys, and they ask him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? It's like he says, oh, you will have your day in court now. But I am the ultimate judge. I will see you in court again, and I will be the judge. And then we'll see what happens. And he drops the mic. And the, high pre the whole scene then ends quickly. He tears his clothes as a way of expressing grief. What, what further witnesses do we need? We don't need anything else. You've heard what he said. What do you say about it? Blasphemy. What does he deserve? He deserves death. 
And so they spit on him, beat him, hand him over to the guards, and send him on his way. Well, so that's how the scene ends. I'd like to then go home with our friend Ezekiel. Again, this is a made-up character. It's as if Ezekiel, uh, he, he was with Jesus, following Jesus from Galilee as he traveled to Jerusalem in the book of Mark. He was not one of the 12, but he was close friends with some of the disciples, and he, he learns the teachings of Jesus that, that Jesus is teaching to the disciples privately. So he, he has all the information he needs, and he's snuck in to see this scene, and he walks home. He's on his way home, and Jesus has just been arrested. Perhaps he's also seen Peter out in the courtyard. He denies Jesus, and he's walking home, and I would picture him downcast, confused. What happened? How did, how did this all go wrong in just a matter of hours? Judas. Judas. He betrayed, he betrayed him. How did we not see this coming? How did we get so blindsided? And the, and the 12, they all ran. They, they said they would stay with them. But in a moment of confusion and terror, they all fled. Peter, he thought he was really going to stand strong, but he denied even knowing him. The chief, chief priests, the, 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 the very people, sinners that Jesus came to rescue, they, they find out who Jesus is. He, he finally goes public telling them who he is, and they condemn him to death what happened this doesn't make any sense and as he keeps walking maybe he's you know I would if I was showing this I'd show some quick flashbacks not flashbacks of the scenes of the betrayal and the scattering but flashbacks of when Jesus talked about the betrayal so flashbacks back at the the Passover meal as Jesus looked at his disciples and said, one of you is going to betray me. And they all said, well, who, who of us? No, it's one of you is going to betray me. And, and suddenly a light bulb goes on in Ezekiel's mind. He said, the, 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 the betrayal, it was all planned. Jesus, he, he gave us the play-by-play already. And, and you, you go back to the Mount of Olives and says, as Jesus told all the disciples, you're all going to scatter and they, they said so strongly, we're not going to scatter. Jesus told us this was going to happen. This was, this was totally planned. This, and, and, and Peter, he looked with Peter with such compassion and gentleness and told Peter he's, he's going to deny him. This, this wasn't blindsided. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He told us the whole play before it happened. And he told, he's been telling us for weeks. He's going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to hand him over to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And, and they're, going to, they're going to reject him. And they're going to hand him over to be killed. And they're going to give him over to the Gentiles. This, wait, wait. No, no, no. Jesus knew all this was going to happen. This was all according to plan. Nobody was blindsided. This was ex- the king was doing exactly what he said he was going to do. And therefore, at, at all those times, he kept saying, 
oh yes, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to humiliate, be humiliated. But guess what? I'm going to rise on the other side. And what did he say in that courtroom? He said, oh yeah, in the Christ. And, and, and I, I, he knows he's going to die. But what's going to happen? I'm going to reign again. I'm going to be king over all things. And surely, surely, this is, this is good news. Because he, he went public so that he would be crucified. So that he would reign on the other side. And so that he would be king. So that everything would be fulfilled. Oh, oh, I, I got to go home. I got to tell my family. So he rushes in home and he gathers the family. Esther, Esther, come grab the kids. Come, come, you have to hear. He said, oh, Ezekiel, what happened? What happened? Oh, you're never going to guess what happened. Jesus went public. He actually told people, finally, finally who he was, that he's anointed king, that he's going to reign over all things. Oh, that's wonderful, Ezekiel. I bet the chief priests loved to hear it. They were so enjoying the, the, the wonderful celebration that it must have been for all the people in the room. No, 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 Esther. They hated it. They, they spat on him. They, they beat him. And they, they've taken him right now over to Pilate, and probably he'll be dead today. Oh, Ezekiel, I'm sorry. This is terrible. No, 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 no. This is good news, Esther. He's been telling us all along, remember, that he was going to be the ransom that's going to die in the place of sinners for many. So that we could be reconciled to God. And in his death, this, this was the, the path of humiliation before his exaltation. This is all going on in his plan. The, he said he was going to be the king. He was going to rise from the dead. And we cannot trust it. I've seen the promise after promise after promise has been fulfilled. We know, Esther, that he's reigning as king. Or he's going to reign as king. And we'll be able to trust him forever. Well, what, what should we do? Well, we have to tell everyone. We have to tell everyone the great news of this great king who is king over all things. Well, what if... What if what if they do to us the same thing that they do to him? That might happen, Esther. That might be okay. But Jesus is king. And we will rise too and be with our king forever. Because no matter what happens, Jesus has told us that we are to follow the same path of suffering and the same path of being raised once again to be with him. Esther, we have nothing to fear because our king is reigning on the throne. And that is how I would envision Esther or Ezekiel to go home uh, and talk about this scene. This is, this is a great Thanksgiving scene. As Jesus proclaims publicly who he is, that he is the eternal universal king, which is good news for us as believers. As we go to the Lord's table now, we might consider uh, as we uh, move towards the table to ask ourselves, uh, is there an area of life, a situation in life today that if, if the reality of Jesus being the true, universal, eternal king dripped down in our souls a little more, what situation in life would, would feel more stable that you could face with a little bit more confidence if we lived in the good of this reality? And bring that before the Lord with thanksgiving. If you're a follower of Christ here this morning, uh, you are welcome to join us at the table, provided that you are seeking to walk with the Lord in repentant faith. This is not about perfection, but direction, and that you're proclaiming Jesus Christ as the eternal Son of God who died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead and is now reigning as King, and you're seeking to walk with him. If you're here this morning,